join me in one of the passages that for a preacher is one of the most intimidating to preach, and that's Romans chapter 8. Romans the 8th chapter. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. It's obvious it's an, an out-of-town uh, ball game weekend, uh, and uh, it's uh, rather obvious. I want to ask some of you what you did with my church this morning, but uh, I uh, know precisely what's happened. We do have uh, one member uh, who is a retired mathematics professor that got to um, sit uh, in a box game in Ohio at the Ohio State University game with the lieutenant governor. I think he's got plans to run for governor and needed some help with uh, his economic numbers. So he called our mathematics professor to help him out. But in any case, uh, uh, you're here and I want to invite your attention to Romans chapter 8. Romans the 8th uh, chapter. Uh, Texas A&M Aggies are known uh, and make fun of themselves as being a bit thick in the head and not uh, really all that intelligent. And if you'll uh, Google uh, jokes about Texas A&M Aggies, they run the gamut. And Aggies are the best source of some of those jokes. Well, about eight years ago, I felt like a Texas A&M Aggie. I, I did not uh, go to, to the school there. I initially wanted to, but God called me to ministry and sent me to East Texas Baptist University, and I went there. But uh, one day, I um, happened to see uh, a, a cactus growing in our yard. And if you don't uh, pick those out real quickly, they can spread like weeds, and it's very difficult to uproot them and get them out. And I don't know why I did it. I really knew better because I'd done it before. But I reached down and grabbed a leaf of it. I, I didn't see any of the needles, but I reached down and grabbed a handful of it, thinking I was just grabbing an ear of it, and I got a handful of needles. And I, it began to hurt. And I thought, well, I don't take my other hand and begin to take the needles out or I'll have a problem with this hand and I'll be disabled in both hands. So I thought, you know something, about the only place that can reach these needles and not be penetrated are my teeth. So I reached down and I begin to bite them out. Well, in a few moments, they're all over my tongue and I've got cactus needles out of my tongue. And so I have got uh, a hand free, and I, I do pull some of them out, get a few out of my tongue, and I go onto Facebook and I type in, I have cactus needles in my hands and my tongue. What do I do? And my former Baptist campus ministry director typed on, he said, you went to East Texas Baptist University, not A&M. What's going on with you? <laughs> and, and then I had some other comments. Um, Use Elmer's glue. Pour Elmer's glue on it and pull them off. And then one bonafide southern friend said, duct tape. <laughs> and, and so I used every bit of uh, these uh, counsels and pieces of advice and eventually get uh, them, them out. Um, the last one I got out last week. It's been about eight years, but um, that's how difficult that is. And, and the sad thing is I did this years ago as well and apparently didn't learn my lesson. Um, you know, that serves as something of a parable for many people's lives. That there are things that people have stuck to them. And, and they don't have any way to get them out. And if that's you, Romans chapter 8 has got some very good news for you. And in fact, some of you are stuck in guilt. And, and you're finding it hard to pull it out. About the time you pull a needle of guilt out, it's someplace else. And in sensitive places. 
Uh, some of you have got some worry and anxiety about the future, whether or not God's going to take care of your needs. And you wonder how in the world is the future going to work out in, in, in my favor. And then some of you have got some other challenges and difficulties. You've got these needles of some sad and sorrowful experiences, wondering what is the meaning of this? I mean, if something good could come from it, that would be wonderful. But right now, I don't see a single good thing coming from it. And then some have got a needle protruding out of their soul, wondering, what's going to happen with me when I die? I'm not at all sure that things are right with God. I'm not sure at all. Romans chapter 8 has got some of the loftiest and highest language. The commentators stretch the human languages in order to describe the awesomeness of this particular chapter, and it would be really good for all of us to memorize and take a year or two to um, do so. Now, our Awana kids, it'd take them 10 minutes, but for normal people, it might take a while. But Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, the Apostle Paul soars the heights of language to describe how God's love will not tolerate some things. Look here in verse number 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, He also glorified. Well, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Well, who shall bring charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're killed all day long, we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I've got some good news for you this morning. If there's something that is stuck, God has an intolerable love that intends to take care of it. Well, what does it mean for God to have an intolerable love? Well, the first thing happens to be this. Because God's love is intolerable. In love, God will not tolerate pointless suffering. God will not tolerate pointless suffering suffering. The best days of your life and mine happen to be the days when we were just like Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how many sorrows, how many shames, how many, um, how many experiences of humiliation and embarrassment and regret we could have avoided if every word we had said had been just like Jesus? If every decision had been just like Jesus? If we had met every temptation just like Jesus? Hey, the best days of our lives are days whenever we were just like Jesus. Well, hey, that's the whole point of this text. 
and I want you to look carefully at verse number 28 and 29. Verse 30, I'll unpack at a later date uh, in some of the brilliant, very encouraging language that's here. But I want to focus primarily on verse 28 and 29. It says, And we know that in all things, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Well, look at the degree here. The degree is all things. That's the degree to which God can work all things for good. All things. Every happy experience and every sad experience. Every bored experience, every experience of failure. Everything that a human has endured potentially can be worked for good according to God. That means there is absolutely nothing that cannot fall under the purview and the sovereignty and the rule of God. All things can work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, you know me well enough, most of you do, to know I'm not speaking out of a vacuum. I've had a lot of sorrow and suffering in my own life, far more than what a human being should have had at the ages I had it. And I want to assure you, I have tested and tried this, and every bit of it is true. And people sitting around you have as well. That's the degree to which God can work all things for good. All things. And then, I want you to notice not only that, but the destination. The destination. God can work all things together for good to those who love God and those that are called according to His purpose. Now, the apostle does not say here that all things are good. Oh, no. He doesn't say that at all. He says God can work all things for a good result, even if they are sorrowful. Psalm 76.10 says, even the wrath of man shall praise him. So he didn't say all things are good. And then he did not say that all things work together for good for everyone. That is not true. There are some experiences in life for some people that are absolutely devastating, and they don't produce a single good thing. I'm really concerned about the secular optimism in our day that says everything happens for a reason. And it might be that you have made a stupid decision. Not that God's working in your life. It doesn't say that all things are good. And it doesn't say all things work together for good for all people. There is a destination for this promise. All things work together for good to those what? Who love God and are called according to His purpose, which is a synonymous expression for they are, they've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. For those that have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, and not just all of those Christians that have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, you know, it is entirely possible to be a Christian and to drift from God, to be outside of His will, to be engaged in disobedience. There may be some experiences that come the way of that person that absolutely do not help that person at all. They are not good because they lack this final thing. They don't love God. But for those who are following Jesus, for those who love God, ladies and gentlemen, the promise is true. That's the destination of this promise. For those who know Christ and for those who love God, God especially arranges those sorrowful and happy circumstances for good. Now, there's more to it. Not only the degree and the destination, but look at the definition of good in the text. Look at here. This is why uh, they work for good. For whom he foreknew, he knew their whole life before him, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. 
That is the doctrine of predestination. God has predestined us to become just like His Son Jesus. Friends, that's what it means when it says good in verse number 28. God causes all things to work for Christ's likeness to those who know Him and love Him. That is how God works. So God, God, when He sees a happy experience or a sorrowful experience coming to the life and of the child of God that loves Jesus, He especially gets active and arranges that experience to make it something that produces Christ-likeness. God will not tolerate a single experience that will be a waste in that kind of person's life. So that's how you interpret your walk with Christ. Now you've got to ask, do I know Christ as Savior? Uh, to reject in them is to walk through life alone. To, to reject Him is to walk through all the sorrows alone. To reject Him is to, is to face death and eternity alone. But to embrace Christ and to love Him is to collect the promise of verse number 28. And so listen. If you know Christ, and if you love Him, as He defines it, then one day you will be able to look back at every experience of your life and say, that was good. You will be able to look back on everything that took place in your life and say the same thing God did when He was finished with creation. You look at everything that God has made in your life, and you say, it was very good. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, I'm learning then to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. That's what every experience is to do. It's to slam us into the rock, Jesus Christ. So God will not tolerate pointless suffering. But there's a second thing. God will not tolerate neglected children. We've got Ronnie Hill coming with us in um, uh, October 21st or the 24th. Uh, and in fact, uh, Sunday morning, we're asking everyone to bring one. Each one bring a friend. Bring a Bible and bring a friend. And uh, then the week before, we're doing a fast week. We're asking all of our members to select a day the week before Ronnie gets here to fast and to pray and to plead with God to do a neat work in our lives like he did three years ago when Ronnie was here. And then each evening, we'll have a pre-service meeting at 6 and then we'll have a service meeting at 7 and we'll tell you more about that as time goes on. But I absolutely love Ronnie Hill. Ronnie really pushes me and challenges me to think more and more of the Great Commission and how lost people need uh, Jesus Christ. And he does so by his own example. He not only leads churches to do such things, but he himself has done some really bold things through the years to do so. One day, if you get the opportunity to look at the website, Three Minute Story, or Google Ronnie Hill and Three Minute Story, you will find that a few years ago, Ronnie had a giveaway of some cars and pickup trucks after he had won one. He entered a context, contest and won a Lexus or an Infinity and gave it to his wife. He thought, man, that'd be a great evangelism tool. And so he purchased a uh, $40,000 car out of his own pocket and set up a website and told people they could enter into a contest to win this thing if they would listen to his testimony online. Ladies and gentlemen, over a period of three years, 50,000 people did and 15,000 people indicated they opened their heart to Jesus Christ. Remarkable. Isn't that great? I think that's wonderful. And he paid for it all. Um, that's uh, precisely 
what he did. Now, I want you just to imagine that one of these people happens to win this truck or this car from Ronnie, and they show up to pick it up. In fact, one man won it, and he couldn't come pick it up. He couldn't pay the taxes on it. So Ronnie covered the taxes and delivered it to him himself. Let's just imagine that uh, someone acquires this vehicle that they've won, and Ronnie refuses to give him the key to the vehicle. You know, some children of God think they've received Christ as Savior. Jesus was slaughtered at the cross, risen from the dead, and now God is going to let me go miserly through the rest of my life. Look at verses 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's a lesser than, greater than argument that starts here and continues through the rest of the chapter. In other words, what the text is teaching is, is that when we were hostile towards God, when we were lost without Christ, when we were friends of the flesh and the world, under those circumstances, God gave his son for us at the cross. He delivered him up. God purposely arranged things in Jesus Christ to get him to the cross. Somebody asked the question one time, how did Jesus end up on the cross? Was it Judas for money? Was it Pilate for fear? Was it the Jews for envy? No, it was the Father for love. In love, the Father gave Jesus at the cross for a hostile and lost world. Now, if that's what God does for reprobate sinners, what will God do for his children? If he's giving them salvation, is he going to withhold the key or the fob? Absolutely not. The cross then is a guarantee, and the cross then is a lens through which you can look at your future life and every one of your needs, every last one of them. Your future then looks like the cross. God comes through and meets needs. Now, it doesn't mean that we're handling our resources appropriately. I remember preaching a similar point many years ago in an interim uh, pastor that I was doing when I was teaching and, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I remember after the service, a lady came up to me angrily and she said, God doesn't meet every one of your, our needs. I have needs that God has not met. And I reassured her, Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I talked to staff after the service about it. And they said, well, we've worked with her through the years, and you know what? She's not very responsible with her money. We've given her financial counseling, and she's just blowing through it, doing whatever her kids want, and not very responsible. Listen, God can meet the need, but that doesn't mean we're using his resources wisely. God did meet the need. And she wasn't handling it appropriately. Ladies and gentlemen, there are, there are always enough resources to take care of any need that the child of God has. Whether it's for salvation or sustenance or whether it happens to be to get to the other side safely into the arms of Jesus. God is for us. He does not know of any neglected children. If it's power for service, God will come through. If it happens to be a connection with the Father in an intimate time of prayer, God will come through. If it happens to be a physical need that is within His will, God will come through. God takes care of the needs of His 
children that will walk with him. Now, it's up to us to handle these resources wisely. There was a wealthy Roman man many years ago, a couple, couple millenniums ago, who uh, had a son that really disappointed him. And he wrote him out of his will and excluded him and left everything to his slave, Marcellus, who was very faithful and loyal. But he told his son to come visit with him on his deathbed. And he said, I've written you out of the will, but I'm going to let you go through my estate and have one thing. And the young man said, I want Marcellus. When he got Marcellus, he got the whole estate. When you got Jesus Christ, you've got everything else that comes with God. You got grace, you got forgiveness, you got provision, you got heaven, you got all the promises, the thousands of them in the Word of God. God is a God that does that in a love that will not tolerate a single neglected child. He won't do it. Well, there's a third thing in the text that God will not uh, tolerate, and that is, and this may be surprising to you, but God will not tolerate valid charges. Oh, no, He won't tolerate valid charges against you as well. And isn't this a day? of charges? Is this not a day when people carelessly and freely just launch any charge they possibly can at anyone? And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not merely talking about the political structure and those involved in that in our nation, although that's real there and unfortunate many times. I'm talking about charges in life between family members who are jealous and jockeying for position, between friends and opponents and even enemies on social media. I mean, the kind of charges that people level at each other, I refuse to participate in it. I won't have a thing to do with it. It's ugly. It's wrong. That's not how we handle things in life. The Bible has a prescribed method for handling um, uh, such things. And uh, placing it on social media is not God's way of, uh, of doing it at all. Uh, that, that's not it at all. And, and because there's a great fear in falsely charging someone. But do you understand it's not always the charges that are false that become public against someone. It's the private things they could be charged of as well. You see? What kind of charges would God have against us? You see, those are true. Ugly things people have said about you may not be true, but what God knows is true. And, and the things God knows may be far more scandalous and heartbreaking than what's been said about you publicly. God knows. And you know something? Even if it's valid, God won't tolerate it. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. Furthermore, is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Do you understand what that means? That means that God will not tolerate valid charges against you because the highest court and the highest judge in the land has declared you innocent by the blood of Christ and he has his son at the courthouse near the files watching over your case in case someone starts to mess with it. Jesus makes constant intercession for his people. He intervenes as an attorney, as an advocate for everyone of his people. And so God has completely eliminated those concerns. He will not tolerate against you not only false charges, but if you know Christ as Savior, he won't even tolerate valid charges against you any longer. It's been removed out of the way because of the death and resurrection of Christ and God's act of justifying you and declaring you innocent of all charges. 
What good news? Now, some of you need to hear that because some of you are wondering, am I really right with God? I've, I've heard, for example, some rather remarkable conversion experiences. And I just came to Christ when I was a kid, or I came to Christ a, a little older. The first time the Lord knocked on the door of my heart, I came to Him. I was not part of a, a, a crew that ran drugs across the border. I was never a hit man or hit woman in the mafia. Nothing dramatic like that. I just received Jesus when He knocked on the door of my heart. W. Criswell tells the story of his own conversion. He was 10 years old, and his mother simply looked at him after the sermon during the invitation one Sunday and said, son, don't you think it's time that you give your heart to Christ? And he said, yes. And with tears in his eyes, he walked down the aisle, gave his heart and life to Christ. And most everyone overlooked him that day because on that same day, in that same service, a 70-year-old man came to Christ. And they all celebrated him, but they overlooked the 10-year-old boy who gave his heart and life to Jesus. And many of you know what took place with Dr. Criswell. Dr. Criswell became the esteemed pastor of First Baptist Dallas for 45 years and really shaped Christendom. Uh, after World War II. But in any case, uh, Dr. Criswell had some doubts about his salvation. Oh, he did. He was preaching, started preaching at the age of 17, and he would finish preaching. Even when he held a country pastorate, he would go back after preaching and get on his face before God by his bedside and say, God, I don't know that I'm saved. Lord, I've heard people testify that they saw angels when they came to Christ. Now, I've heard others say that they saw a ball of fire fall from heaven or that they saw lights. And he kept reading the Bible and he found that Satan appears as an angel of light. And in, in, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, in Revelation 13, 13 through 14, he throws balls of fire down to the earth as well. Oh, he does all sorts of things that are dramatic and that appear supernatural. By the way, Understand this, not everything supernatural necessarily comes from God. Please do not base your salvation on tears or emotion. Do not base your hope of heaven upon some kind of moving experience. The only thing you and I can base our hope on happens to be trust and faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and God's willingness to keep His promise. So Dr. Chris will just imagine him standing before God. Someone approaching the throne and saying, I should be led into heaven because I saw a ball of fire. And Satan comes out of the, out of the, um, uh, off from the side and says, I threw that ball of fire and deceived you. Someone else says, I saw an angel in lights and he appears. I'm that angel of light and drags them both off to hell. And Dr. Chris will imagine himself appearing before God and saying, well, Lord, I should enter heaven because you made a promise. You said to as many as received him, gave he the right to become the children of God, even those that believe on his name. That's the hope. God keeps his word because he's eliminated our, eliminated our guilt through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so whether you have a dramatic conversion experience or not is entirely beside the point. That you had a conversion experience is the point because God keeps his word. He'll not tolerate valid charges. But there's a final thing here in this text. And that is, he will not tolerate loveless defeat. Now, there is a literary device found in this text I want you to be aware of, and it's called chiasmus. It has a chiastic structure. That's a $400 college word, meaning they go through some development and put the point in the middle of the, of the text, not at the end. He doesn't say the point for the end. He puts it in the middle. Now, 
If you look at the first part of the text, verse 35, and compare it with the last part of the text, verse 39, you will find the subject is the same. No separation from God's love. Well, if you move to the second part of the text and the second to the last part of the text, you'll find the subject is the same. A series of things that oppose us. And then you will find something standing on its own in the middle of the text in verse 37, and that's the point of the text. Now look with me real carefully at this. Verse 35, and then we'll go to verse 39, and then again to verse 35 and 36, then we'll go to verse 38 and 39, and then we will focus on the point in verse 37. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, he picks up that same subject as a bookend in verse 39. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he uh, continues uh, with the second line. He says there, um, Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Well, then he moves on to some other items that might oppose. He started with seven, and he continues with um, at least nine. And I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. All of these things are potential obstacles to experiencing the love of God and security in Jesus Christ. Well, here's what he said. Here's the whole point he's trying to make in verse number 37. He says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us conquerors more than conquerors the greek word there is huper nike hyper nikeo hyper you know what hyper means it means intense it means extreme beyond the typical normal expectation and then nike nikeo uh, we get the word for the shoe brand, Nike, from this. It means victory. It means conquest. It means to conquer. And in Jesus Christ, those who know Jesus Christ are extreme super conquerors in Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture says. Now, th that's the uh, conquest. I want you to see the certainty of this. Look at verse 37 again. Yet in all these things, whether the seven above or the nine below, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. We're not hoping to be. We don't strain to be. We don't strive to be. We don't stretch to be. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a current condition of every child of God. Every child of God is currently more than a conqueror. That is their being. They may be living a defeated life and not be aware of the promise in verse number 37. What is stated here is unconditional. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're not straining, stretching, or striving to be. We are now more than... You say, wait a minute, I don't feel like I'm conquering. Do not judge God's work in your life by your experience. Don't judge God's work in your life necessarily by your feelings or your understanding or lack of understanding. The Word of God says that every child of God is more than a conqueror, and here's how, through Him who loved us. 
In other words, Jesus Christ purchased victory at the cross and he secured it by rising from the dead and he keeps it at the right hand of the Father by interceding for every child of God. And so ladies and gentlemen, you're not battling the issues that the text addresses for victory. You're battling them from a posture of victory. That's what Jesus Christ does in life. And so even when you face the very end, of life. It is God's intention to abundantly supply to you an entrance into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is what the text urges us to believe and to think. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is perfectly illustrated by the great fourth century preacher Chrysostom. He preached in the eastern part of the uh, Roman uh, Empire. And he got himself oftentimes into trouble with the emperor. Because he'd call him out and call him out from that prestigious pulpit in uh, what used to be known as Constantinople. One time the emperor called him to account. He stood before the emperor and the emperor threatened him. He said, I'll banish you if you do not give up your faith. And Chrysostom replied, you can't banish me for the whole world is my father's world. He said, well, I'll put you to death. Well, you can't. My life is hidden with Christ in God. Then I'll take away all your material possessions. You can't because my treasure is in heaven along with my heart. And he said, but I can drive you away from man. You'll have no friends left. And Chrysostom replied, no, you can't make me friendless. I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy all of your attempts to silence me. There's nothing you can do to hurt me. What do you do with a person like that? There's no intimidating this man. And that's what the text says here. We are more than conquerors. We are currently in this present moment, in every moment that we've known Jesus, more than conquerors through him who loved us and therefore shall never, ever by anything, not even ourselves, powers on earth or powers in the demonic kingdom, be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It can't happen. Can't happen. He secured it, and it's based on him, not the performance or behavior of the people. This is what God does in a life. And some have struggled, though, because they haven't loved Jesus the way they should, or they haven't trusted him. Uh, they, they've not sought to arrange their needs in a way where uh, they apply God's resources to them and have them met. And that's why we need Christ. That's why we need to come. And I hope you're convinced today that if you were to turn to Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, he'd cancel all of your guilt and become active in your life according to the dictates of this text. He'll do it for you today if you'll say yes to him. You need to cast off doubt. You need to cast off anything that keeps you from Jesus Christ. The Bible calls that repentance. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God saying, repent and believe in the gospel. And so you reject all of that that keeps you from Christ, and then you come to Him. You trust Him. You believe in Him. You uh, commit your soul to Him. You commit your guilt to Him. You commit your eternity and your life now to Him because He was crucified and risen from the dead. And He will embrace you. He loves you. I mean, how can you read this text and come to any other conclusion? And He wants you. Maybe... Um, Maybe you've made this decision, but you need to follow Christ in baptism. Or maybe you need to become part of this church. We want you here. And we're going to pray for you. 
and ask God to do a neat work in your life. And in just a moment, we'll sing. And when we do, we're going to ask you to stand and step out from the pew where you are. Walk down one of these aisles, see a staff member here, and make that decision for Jesus Christ and say yes to him. Everyone Jesus called, Jesus called publicly. The, the, the cowards, the people that are stuck on themselves, the people that are too proud of themselves, they can stay. But if you're humble before God, you can come and give yourself to Jesus Christ and say yes to him. If you're humble and if you'll trust him. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And let's pray together.